Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello there. This is Lynn Perkins of the History of the Ottoman Empire podcast. I have to say... Researching relations between the Ottoman Empire and Latin America does not bring up much. Ottoman interests during the mass colonization of the New World were the continuation of their conquest of Christian lands in Europe and securing already established Islamic territories from perceived heretics and those deemed unfit to rule. When the countries of North and South America began gaining their independence from the European powers, the Ottomans were experiencing difficulties of their own, and lands they once controlled were getting their own independence or being gobbled up by the same Europeans who dominated the West. This destabilization of the empire leads to the primary event that is mentioned whenever Latin America and the Ottomans are mentioned in the same sentence, the Ottoman diaspora. Starting in the 1860s and continuing until after World War II, there was a mass exodus of people leaving the area of what is now known as Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Palestine. Due to being directly in the middle of the conflicts between the empire and an increasingly defiant Egypt led by Muhammad Ali. At first, these exiles were primarily Arab Christians, but over time, large segments of the Muslim populations fled as well. They settled all over Latin America, from Mexico to Chile to Argentina, and were referred to as Turco because of their Ottoman passports. This was considered derogatory to the new settlers because, as mentioned, they were primarily of Arab origin, not Turkish. I'm sure both Max and I will cover these people in later episodes of both our podcasts. But until then... I suggest you subscribe and listen to both the history of Latin America and my podcast, The History of the Ottoman Empire, in order to get a much richer understanding of the world we are all sharing.
Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 19, Who Was Christopher Columbus? So last time we finished our quick tour of Iberian history, leading up to the point where the two nations were finally ready to begin their era of discovery and conquest. Now we're almost ready to begin looking at that story. The Iberians and the Native American peoples are about to meet, and Latin America proper is about to be created. Now it's highly likely that you already know that the person who discovered, in air quotes, the Americas for the Europeans was Christopher Columbus. But what else do you know about him? A man who led such a momentous life surely deserves some attention. In today's episode, we'll look at the man and the myth. I say this because, despite his prominent role in history, we still have many questions about his early life. We think we know who he is. In fact, we probably do. But there are competing ideas about who he was. This episode, then, will look at these theories. This will, of course, involve a certain amount of speculation and the inclusion of some things which aren't generally accepted by historians. It should be fun, though, so let's begin. Let's start with the mainstream version of events, and what is, in truth, probably the correct one. It's thought that Columbus was born in a village close to the city of Genoa. While the Italians claim him as their own, and this location is today within the borders of Italy, at the time, this country did not exist. He would have been a subject of the Republic of Genoa, a rich, monarchless state that possessed several colonies around the Mediterranean and Black Seas, and which had grown rich from trading. As a merchant of this cosmopolitan nation, Columbus would have been used to travel. He is believed to have spent his early adulthood travelling around Europe engaging in trade. He's thought to have visited Britain, Greece and West Africa during this time. He had a brother based in Lisbon, and married into another Genoese trading family, which had a strong presence on the Portuguese island of Madeira. It was these links, and his seafaring experience, and his interest in finding a western sea route to Asia, that led him to the court of the Portuguese king, Joao II. We will pick up his story here later. There are a number of reasons to believe this version of events. A number of documents seem to suggest that Columbus was Genoese, including letters written by the Genoese ambassador to Castile, which describe Columbus as a fellow citizen. Many other contemporary or near-contemporary historians and writers also back up this explanation. It seems, then, that at the time, it was generally accepted that Columbus was from Genoa. It was also the story of his origins that he himself told. In a couple of legal papers and letters, he describes his love for his home country of Genoa. Furthermore, after his death, his son wrote a biography of Columbus, in which he describes him as being descended from Genoan nobility. He goes even further, claiming that their lineage could be traced back to the Roman general Colonius, hence the name Columbus, or Columbo in Genoese. Now of course, who would be better placed than Columbus and his own son to know the life story of the great explorer? On the face of it, the evidence seems pretty convincing, but it's worth having a closer look. We have to consider the motivations behind our sources. Columbus and his son, for example, may have had good reason to be economical with the truth of their family history. 
While the merchants of Genoa were often rich, their system of government was fairly unique for the time. Most of Europe was ruled by nobility, and the prestige of your family would often determine your prospects and social standing. The merchants of Genoa, Venice, and the other republics of Italy mostly lacked the pedigree required to command the respect of European elites. It was therefore in the Columbus family's interest to encourage the idea that they were descended from nobility. The claim that a specific Roman general can be pinpointed as a direct ancestor, while potentially providing much prestige, seems especially suspect. That's not to say that Columbus was not Genoese. This fact seems to have been accepted by pretty much everyone at the time, and it's by far the most convincing story we have. It's just that we must be careful when examining sources. As we shall see, if the other theories about his origins were true, he might have good reason to invent a Genoese backstory. So what are the other theories surrounding Columbus's origins? Well, in recent years it seems that everyone wants to claim Columbus as their own. It has been claimed that he may have been Catalan, Jewish, Portuguese, Greek, Polish or even Norwegian. Many of these claims are fanciful and based on flimsy evidence. A couple, however, do merit a look. Despite working for the Spanish when discovering the Americas, during his early years, Columbus actually had much closer links with the Portuguese. As I previously mentioned, he had a brother living there, married into a family that was based there, and first pitched his grand adventures to the Portuguese king. There are some that believe that Portugal may in fact have been his place of origin. This theory first suggested by a Portuguese historian in 1916, even identifies a man who may have been the real Christopher Columbus. Salvador Fernandes Zarco was the son of a duke in southern Portugal. He was born out of wedlock, to a Jewish mother no less, and he grew up in a village of Cuba. Although he lived a relatively privileged life, the circumstances of his birth meant that he needed to make his own way. To disguise his origins... It's been suggested that he took the pseudonym Chrysophom Colomb, or Christopher Columbus. There are a number of pieces of evidence used to back up this theory. Two papal bulls discussing the discovery of the Americas, written by the Pope at the time, used the Portuguese version of Columbus's name, rather than the Spanish version of his employers, the Latin of the rest of the document, or the Genoese-Italian version that would have been expected if he was indeed from Genoa. There is also the fact that Columbus used a strange signature when signing documents. He did not write his name, but instead wrote a strange acronym that some say demonstrates a knowledge of the Jewish sect, Kabbalah. If Zarco was indeed Columbus, this could be a nod to his Jewish origins. The final piece of evidence for this theory is in the fact that he was raised in the village of Cuba. Cuba, the more famous island, was of course one of the first places discovered by Columbus. If he was Zarco, he may have named it after the place of his childhood. There is an alternative explanation to the origin of the name he gave to the island, that it came from a Taino word, Kubao, which means fertile land. Both these origins of the name sound plausible. It's also worth noting that in a letter which Columbus himself wrote the year after discovering the island, he refers to it as Juana, not Cuba. I have not been able to discern why this name did not stick, but if Columbus wanted to name the island after his hometown, it seems strange that he would refer to it by another name in this letter. 
This Portuguese origin theory has led to another, slightly conspiracy theory-ish claim. Some people think that Columbus was Portuguese and was deliberately sent to Spain to act as a spy. When he set off on his adventures in the employ of the Spanish king, he was actually relaying information back to Portugal, this theory says. Furthermore, while the Portuguese raced around Africa and gained access to the spice riches of Asia, Columbus was sending the Spanish on what they believed to be a wild goose chase to find a non-existent western route, thus distracting them from following the Portuguese around the Horn of Africa. This would explain the Genoese connection. It would be a useful cover story which averted Spanish suspicion. Genoa had no ambitions outside of the Mediterranean, whereas Portugal were direct rivals. It's an interesting theory, and I leave it up to you to make of it what you will. A third theory, and the last I consider worth mentioning, is that Columbus was Catalan. It's pretty much accepted by everyone that Columbus was not Castilian. That does not mean, however, that he was not from the territories which would become Spain. A Catalan could have still been considered a foreigner in the Castilian court, and they spoke, and still speak, a related but different language. It's language which provides the best evidence for this theory. Like most people writing in a second language, Columbus made the odd mistake when writing in Castilian. These mistakes have been analysed by linguists, and have led some of them to conclude that the mistakes he made most resemble those that would have been made by a native Catalan speaker, rather than a native Italian. Let me quickly explain how this works with an example. When a person learns a new language, even if they have a good vocabulary, they are likely to make mistakes thanks to differences in grammar. Normally, the speaker will attempt to form a sentence in the way they would in their native language. Take the phrase, the man we met yesterday, or the man from yesterday. In Spanish, Castilian Spanish, that would be el hombre de ayer, which literally translates as the man of yesterday. It would not then be surprising to hear a Spanish person speaking in English say the man of yesterday. By analysing small mistakes such as these in Columbus's writing, it appears that he may have tried occasionally to incorrectly form Castilian sentences in ways closer to Catalan than Genoese Italian. Proponents of the Catalan theory also argue that many of the names he gave to the places he discovered had a Catalan connection, particularly to the island of Ibiza. One historian has argued that while there was a Christopher Columbus in Genoa at the time, he was a poor merchant, unlikely to have ever learnt how to captain a boat, and that his dates don't match those of the adventurer. There is also a variation on the story in which Columbus's family were Jews based in Catalonia, as we discussed last episode, this was a time of persecution for the Jews, and so they may have either fled to Genoa, explaining that connection, or disguised his identity by creating a Genoan story to avoid persecution. Usually in situations like this, the simplest explanation is the correct one. I think that it's most likely that Columbus was indeed from Genoa, although his ancestry may not have been as illustrious as his family claimed. There are simply too many contemporary people claiming that he was Genoese. That this theory was not even questioned until the last century or so also adds weight to this argument. While it's certainly possible that he managed to fool everyone and create a Genoese persona, it seems unlikely, and it would have been difficult for him to pull off. I have to admit, though, that I have a soft spot for the Portuguese hypothesis. But again, I have to accept it's probably incorrect.
wherever he came from. In 1485, Columbus was pitching the idea to the Portuguese king, Joao II, that he should fund a voyage to discover a western route to the Indies. As we've previously discussed, the spice trade was big business in Europe, and the Portuguese were already making their way down the African coast, attempting to find a route to Asia. The journey was a long and dangerous one, however, and they were still not sure that they would find a way to reach Asia this way. Columbus had what he thought was a better idea. He just needed to find someone to fund him, and he could prove it. I hinted last week that it's a popular misconception that Columbus was alone in his conviction that the world was round. Many people think that he set off and proved everyone wrong, thus being responsible for one of the most important scientific discoveries in history. It's a nice story, and not completely made up, but it wasn't really true. The idea of a round earth had been floating around the scientific community of Europe for a while. The ancient Greeks had of course theorised that the world was round, and both Pythagoras and Aristotle had both used maths and reason to try and prove it. Several Islamic scholars also believed that the world was round, and tried to work out its circumference. These ideas had returned to Europe, and various people had argued in favour of it at various points in history. One contemporary of Columbus, who believed in it, was Toscanelli, a scientist from Florence. He himself had suggested the idea that the world is round, and that a quicker route to the Indies might be found, to the previous Portuguese king, but the king rejected it. Toscanelli later sent a letter detailing his theory to Columbus, and when King Joao came to the throne, Columbus decided to try and convince the king himself. King Joao, however was also not to be convinced. He had already invested too much time and money into the African route, and did not want to split his resources between that and the new one suggested by Columbus. Furthermore, although they were correct in guessing that the Earth was round, no one had definitively determined how big of a sphere it actually was. Columbus supported an optimistic estimate. It was small, and it would be a quick journey across the Atlantic to reach China. Others, however, believed that it was much bigger. This might not even make it a shortcut. As no one could say with certainty how big it was, the validity of the whole theory was in doubt. It was, at that point, just a theory. The king passed on Columbus's proposal to his court scientists in order to get a better idea of its viability. While they were not necessarily of the opinion that the world was flat, they did believe that Columbus had seriously underestimated the size of the earth, and that the distance to China and the Indies would make the new route impossibly long, if indeed it did exist. It's also possible that the demands that Columbus made were also a factor in Joao's decision. In return for undertaking the hard and dangerous work of sailing into unknown seas, as well as possibly securing great riches for Portugal, Columbus asked not only for the king to fund the expedition, but also for a number of other concessions. He requested that he be made governor of any lands he discovered. He also wanted 10% of all the revenue that the crown made from his discoveries, and the title Great Admiral of the Ocean. Three years later, Columbus tried again, and Joao once again agreed to give him an audience and at least hear his proposal. This time, however, he was even further from success. In the past three years, Portuguese explorers had travelled further and further down the West African coast. Soon after their meeting, Bartolomeu Diaz rounded the Cape of Good Hope, the very southernmost tip of Africa. 
Africa had always been the great barrier between the Portuguese and Asia, until they found a way to round it and head eastward, who would be unable to reach Asia. Once Diaz discovered that it was in fact possible to do this, Joao could be pretty confident that it was possible to reach the Spice Islands that way. This made him even less inclined to finance a harebrained scheme into the unknown. Once again, Columbus left disappointed. He gave up on the Portuguese and started to look elsewhere for funding. He tried his supposed homeland of Genoa, as well as the Republic of Venice, but both showed no interest. He then wrote to the King of England, but having just won the War of the Roses and having some rebellions on his hands, he was too busy consolidating his power to get involved in colonial enterprises. When he wrote to Ferdinand and Isabella of the newly united Kingdom of Spain, for the first time he made some progress. Worried about the discoveries which their Portuguese rivals were making, the king and queen agreed to listen to Columbus, and although they were not ready to back him, they were sufficiently interested and or concerned that someone else may take him up, that they offered him an annual retainer to stop him going elsewhere, just in case they changed their minds. He took the money and sat there, living comfortably on it, but growing increasingly restless. I'm sure riches were a motivating factor for Columbus, but he was not the sort who could happily sit back and live a life of luxury. He was a man of ambition, and he wanted fame and adventure. After years of lobbying, he eventually convinced the royal couple. They agreed to finance his expedition, and agreed to the same terms he'd suggested to the Portuguese, 10% of the revenue, the admiral title, and being made viceroy of all discovered lands. There were a couple of important geopolitical shifts that may help explain why the Spanish eventually changed their mind and gave Columbus a shot. First of all was that Ferdinand and Isabella had just conquered the last Muslim kingdom in Iberia, Granada, thus finally completing the Reconquista. They now had more resources to divert elsewhere, as well as a pool of battle-hardened and restless soldiers anxious for a new challenge. As we've previously discussed, religious struggle had become an important part of the Spanish identity. Now that the last Muslims had been pushed off the peninsula, many Spaniards wanted a new outlet for their religious fervour. Whether this would mean converting or conquering a new set of infidels was as yet unknown. After centuries of looking inwards, trying to win back what they saw as their natural homelands, Spanish focus rapidly and decisively turned outwards. The second major factor was the heating up of the rivalry with Portugal. Not only had the Portuguese rounded the Cape of Good Hope, they had also now reached India via Egypt. It seemed extremely probable that if they continued north from southern Africa, they could pick up on the second half of the Egyptian route somewhere around Arabia and sail all the way to India, the Spice Islands and China. While Spain was the most powerful of the two nations, controlling as it did the majority of Iberia, as well as parts of Italy, it watched the growing wealth of the Portuguese nervously. As we know, back in the 1470s, the War of Castilian Succession had resulted in stalemate. The terms of the peace treaty at the end of this war had pushed Spain out of most of the Atlantic, and the Portuguese were now getting rich on gold and slaves. Because of these reasons then, in April of 1492, it was agreed that Columbus would set off in search of an Atlantic route to Asia. On the 3rd of August, he set off. 
after years of trying to find someone to believe in his dream, he was finally off into the unknown, to make a name for himself, and to make what must be one of the most dramatic changes to the course of humanity in history. Next time, we'll follow him on that journey. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.